If you've been around these last number of weeks, you know that we have been in a series called Here, the King and the Kingdom. And Keith and Wilson have been sharing with us out of Matthew's Gospel, chapters 11 and 12. This morning, we're going to flash back, uh, back to chapter 5. And we're going to look for a few moments at the first couple of things that Jesus says about the kingdom. And the very first thing that Jesus ever says in the New Testament about the kingdom is actually in verse 4. So just for a moment, hear this. Jesus began his ministry saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's the first thing. And that's instructive because right away it addresses, Jesus addresses our disposition, our posture. He tells us to repent, to turn. And the next thing he says is this kingdom, kingdom of heaven, actually Matthew says kingdom of heaven, but the phrases are interchangeable. The next thing he says is that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is important. It starts now with Jesus' ministry. We are invited to enter in to the rule and the reign of God now. It keeps going into heaven, of course, but it starts now. So then when Jesus gathers disciples in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, I want to focus on the first words out of his mouth in that context. And the first actual formal teaching line that Jesus gives us is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. My question is, why are the poor in spirit blessed? And the answer that I'd like to unpack this morning is that the poor in spirit have an advantage in God's kingdom because their overall posture makes it easier for them to see God at work in the world. They're more likely to be receptive to Jesus' kingdom mission. Now I'm going to be using these words posture or attitude or disposition kind of interchangeably because our attitude comes out in our bodies, and what we do with our bodies tends to impact our attitude, right? That's why this word posture is so, uh, so helpful. That's why we talk about things like body language. So let me tell you a story that comes from my family vacation, and so now my family's like, wait a minute, first sermon as a pastor, and this is what he's going to do? Don't worry. It'll be okay. But first, the backstory to the story. And the backstory is I was about 14 years old, and for the first time, I saw this movie, Rocky. Have you seen it? It's a great movie, a phenomenal story. I was taken by the movie. And so uh, I learned how to do one-handed push-ups, believe it or not. I could still do them. I'll challenge any of you after the service. <laughs> I also learned, and I didn't like this, I didn't stick with it, how to drink a raw egg. You shouldn't do that. Don't do that. That's bad for you. Uh, but there are things that Rocky does in his movie. It's an inspiring story about a person of no particular account who becomes a champion. All right, so this summer, we went on a little family vacation that took us to Philadelphia. And I had a great idea. Turns out lots of people have this idea. We were going to find those stairs. And they happen to be at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. And it turns out that these stairs are now known as the Rocky Stairs. Okay, I suppose we shouldn't be surprised. And if you haven't seen the movie, I'm sorry. I'll move on to other things. But I hope most of you have seen it. And there's this iconic scene in the movie where Rocky's training and he runs up the stairs and he turns around, the theme song's playing, and he does this dance. It's amazing. It's inspiring. 
And so we went. We thought we're going to do this. Turns out lots of people do this. There's like, this is spiritual pilgrimage to the rocky stairs. But I was better prepared than most because I had a Bluetooth speaker, so I had the theme song going. <laughs> so boom, we're running up the stairs. The music's playing. It was a good time. Well, would you know it? I didn't know this. Besides the, st- beside the stairs is a life-size statue of Rocky Balboa. And so I went over there. I'm waiting for my family. And as I wait, I'm watching like 20, 30 people ahead of me in line to take their pictures. Some bring boxing gloves. They have T-shirts. They work on the pose. The pose, by the way, is like this. Okay? Boxing gloves. This is important because I watch people. A lot of people didn't get the pose right. But I studied it. And that's the pose. Okay, so when it was our turn, I knew how to get the pose right. <clears throat> but I've been wondering, what's the pilgrimage about? Why do people go to the rocky stairs? Why do people bring gloves and act like Rocky or run the stairs? Why do we do this sort of thing? And the point that I want to make is that we inevitably seek to embody the stories that we're drawn to. We want to take them on. We want to enter the stories. And what happens over time, and this is really significant, is that the stories begin to enter us. And the stories come out. They come out in our body language. They come out in our disposition. In other words, we do many things to get into a story over time. And if we pay attention to our attitude and to our posture, we'll see the stories that have taken root. So, back to Matthew chapter 5. Why would Jesus look at this unlikely band of folks and call them blessed? Can you see Jesus on the hill looking out? Again, his first words. You, over there, poor in spirit, my kingdom is for you. Or those of you over there, it looks like you're crying, you're burdened. You'll be comforted in my kingdom. Or how about you over there who are meek, you're overlooked all the time. Did you know that in God's kingdom, you inherit the earth? That's how he starts his teaching. That's amazing. He's addressing the posture of his would-be followers. No doubt these people were not the step-running, glove-wearing, high-achieving victory dancers of first-century Palestine. Paul Simon was closer to the mark when he described them as the rat upon, the sat upon, and the spat upon. The point I'd like to make by focusing primarily on this particular beatitude of poor in spirit, those who are promised the kingdom, is that they have an overall posture and orientation in the world that allows them to resonate with the the vibe, if you will, of the kingdom of God. Consider, for example, if you're poor in spirit, you're more likely to see and then to choose ways to be dependent on God and to acknowledge your need for others. If you're poor in spirit, you're more likely to have a less exaggerated sense of your own significance. Seeing yourself less means you'll see others more. If you're poor in spirit, you'll more easily see and choose ways of trusting people over things, and you'll more easily distinguish between necessities and luxuries. If you're poor in spirit, 
the gospel is more likely to sound like good news to you than it would be to those who think they have all that they need. Perhaps in short, the poor in spirit can more easily see ways to seed control over their lives and receive the grace of God. And in turn, perhaps they can more effectively channel God's grace to others. The central point of my message this morning is that those who would live in the story of God's kingdom have certain attitudes or dispositions that allow them to see circumstances afresh and to then act redemptively. <clears throat> so if your posture is always this, there's things you're going to miss because you're so committed to being and appearing to be the victor. But what would the posture of the poor in spirit look like? Maybe it's this. And what kind of difference does that make? So I'd like to tell a story to illustrate this point of how a posture can help us see things we might otherwise miss. And the story comes from a movie called The War. It's about 30 years old. Kevin Costner plays the lead role of Mr. Simmons. He's a Vietnam vet. He's returned to his very poor town in Mississippi. He's trying to father his parents. They have a family that by a certain point in the movie, these other kids in the country that are always against them. They're the antagonists, the Libniki kids. And you learn to not like them for lots of reasons. Well, at one particular point in the movie, uh, Mr. Simmons goes into, uh, leaves his kids in the car, he goes into a place, he buys some cotton candy, and he's clearly coming out to his car to give the cotton candy to his kids. And then the Libniki kids show up. They start hurling insults. And... Mr. Simmons turns around, he walks towards them. As I watched this scene for the first time, I could feel something well up in me. I identified with the father who wanted to protect my kids, and I'm thinking, oh good, he's gonna give these kids just what they deserve. And I was ready, I was poised. I could imagine ways this might play out if I was in his shoes. And then all of a sudden, as he approaches them, they quiet, they don't know what's coming. And their looks turn to disbelief as he hands them the cotton candy. He goes back to his own car and his son incredulously, Dad, why'd you do that? And he simply said, it looks like they hadn't been given anything in a long time. And I was convicted. Not because I saw something in a movie that I shouldn't have seen, but because I utterly failed to see something that I should have seen. As a follower of Jesus, I should have the kind of imagination that anticipates just that kind of response. You see, the character of Simmons, he had a disposition that allowed him to see circumstances differently and then to act redemptively. He did what most people wouldn't have thought of, Kingdom people are always doing what most people wouldn't think of because they're animated by a posture and a disposition that's characteristic of the very posture and disposition of Jesus. So in last week's sermon, <clears throat> Keith emphasized how our choices day in and day out move us closer to and deeper into the kingdom of Jesus 
or they move us further away. I couldn't agree more. But here's the thing. This is important. The choices that we're able to see in a given situation, the ones we can even begin to imagine, they don't come out of nowhere. They tend to arise out of the attitudinal space that we're in. If you're aggrieved or angry, if you carry that sort of thing around, or if you generally think, I'm the kind of person who has been slighted, then chances are pretty high that fresh and redemptive responses don't tend to enter your head. But it feels like it's harder than ever for many of us to be in a good headspace, doesn't it? I mean, let's be honest. We live in difficult times. Everything seems to be contested. We tend to absorb a relentless stream of the pressing problems of the world. It's so easy to be overwhelmed. But the poor in spirit know that they have to let God's size problems be God's problem. The poor in spirit are in tune with their own limitations. They don't tend to take on more than they can handle. They really are free to release and let things go to God. It's like Psalm 37, which has in Latin the heading, fret not, the psalm we read this morning. You hear the psalmist grappling with the cares of the world. And three times in the passage we read this morning, fret not. And if you reread that psalm, it's beautiful. It is the psalm of a faithful follower of God trying to give it back. And that's what the poor in spirit learned to do. I think managing this is a chronic problem of our age, and it impacts Christians mightily. There was an article not too long ago in Christianity Today called, <clears throat> how's this title? Why are there so many angry theologians? The article begins, what's the matter with theology today? He continues, far from being described by the string of virtues that make up the fruit of the Spirit, much of what is labeled theology is insecurity and fury disguised as dialogue or thoughtfulness. Even the most cursory scrolling of social media could lead you to the conclusion that you must be angry in order to do theology. In our day, it's not uncommon to see theology used as a weapon and not a well of joy. Did you notice that last sentence? Even really good theology can be used as a weapon. Noticing this is key to the point I'm trying to make. We may actually have many times good points to make and even grand truths that need to be proclaimed. But if our attitude is bent, we'll misconstrue our circumstances and our opportunities and even the, with all the truth in the Bible in hand, we'll fail to act with fresh and redemptive agency. This tendency has diminished our witness in the world. Maybe our situation is like the story I told to Mr. Simmons and his cotton candy. We hear the ridicule or insults from real or perceived enemies, but these folks are not heckling our kids in the back seat. They have our faith and our basic view of the world in view or other things that we hold dear. It's natural enough to move into an aggressive posture ourselves. But 
What if we were just poor in spirit enough to notice that our perceived enemies look like they haven't been given anything good from the church for a while? Or from their Christian neighbors? What if we just continued to strive to be that kind of church, to be those kinds of neighbors who give good gifts to those we might otherwise, in a different disposition, perceive as enemies? What I'm saying is simply this, good theology isn't good enough. I once heard a definition of apologetics that said it was the art of making someone sorry they asked you why you're a Christian. (laughs) See what I mean? Such an, an apologist might be right theologically, but horribly wrong in his spirit, and the consequences are dire, especially in our day. Disposition matters. The orientation of our spirit towards God and towards our neighbor matters profoundly. So, how can we get better at this? I've got a few ideas. First one, we need to be animated by the story. Okay? So, in our epistle reading comes from the book of Philippians, chapter 2. Paul is urging the Philippians to be unified. And I'm not going to go in depth with this passage, but in this last part of my message, I'm going to refer you to a few passages. I hope you'll make note of them and go back and swim in them for a while. Okay? So, the first passage I'd love you to make note of is, is the one that was read this morning, Philippians 1, Philippians 2, 1 to 11. But let me draw your attention to one key point that we sometimes miss. Paul's urging the Philippians towards unity. He says something mind-boggling. It doesn't fit in our dominant secular story. Verse 3 of chapter 2, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility value others above yourselves. There's a kingdom principle for you. And as he's writing, you can almost see the thinking unfold. Look at verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. There it is. It's attitude. It's disposition. It's posture. Have the same posture, attitude as Christ Jesus. And then, this is amazing. He doesn't go on to analytically, academically tell you about, uh, describe what the posture looks like. He tells you a story. And this is the story of what's most ultimately true in the world. And again, this point is be animated by the story, the truest story. And the story told in the following verses is what's known generally as the Christ hymn. And scholars believe this is what the early Christians sang. Like right here in the New Testament, we have a hymn. And they sang this story. They worshiped with this story of you. And when you listen in a few minutes... When we have the Eucharist and the prayers of the Eucharist, you'll hear this story is recounted. So there's a saying in Latin that Anglicans tend to like, lex arande, lex credendi, lex vivendi. And that translates to, as we pray or worship, so we believe and so we live. As we pray or worship. So we believe and so we live. The early Christians sang and prayed and worshiped with this story as central. And we're doing the same this morning. We do the same around the table every week. 
This is the central story that Jesus, Jesus' attitude, and then as Paul describes it, it's the attitude not of starting from no account place like Rocky Balboa and achieving high uh, victory status. It's a different arc. It's a story that starts with equality with God. Look at the text. Who being in the form of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing. He emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant. He became obedient to death. And then as the ark plays out, it's God who exalts him. That's the fundamental story. These are the stories that we need to animate, that we need to animate us. And as we've talked about postures, the rocky posture, or the posture of the poor in spirit. When we say in the Eucharist each week, we refer to the outstretched arms of Jesus, right? So let's keep in mind that posture. Second point, let's be animated by the Spirit. So this is a different text. Again, I'm just touching on a principle here. And I would invite you to look later at uh, Galatians 5, 16 to 26. And what you'll see is a bookend. Two bookends begins with, so I say, walk in the Spirit. And the bookend near the end is walk in step with the Spirit, okay? And then in the middle, or towards the end, is this passage that many of us know called the fruits of the Spirit. Have you ever considered how much those fruits address our disposition, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are matters of disposition. And I, when I learned this passage as a young believer for years, I had no idea what the last part of that verse meant. Do you know what, what Paul says after he's done with the fruit of the Spirit? Something very curious. He says, against these things, there is no law. I had no idea what that meant. It finally occurred to me one day, I think he's being sarcastic. It's not against the law. Like, really, you can be kind, and you can have love and joy. In other words, it's not just he's concerned that people will only follow the law, because usually the law tells you a bad things you're not supposed to do. And Paul's pushing back on that because being animated by the Spirit is opposite in every way. It's not primarily telling you the bad things not to do. It's filling your mind and your heart with this crazy imagination that keeps generating amazingly cool things you could do. That's a different orientation. Not not doing the bad thing, but doing unbelievably good things. That's the fruit of the Spirit. One of the Ways I think that we do this as well, in addition to immersing ourselves in the scripture and in prayer, in Bible study, we're going to be doing a series this fall on the prayer book. The Anglican prayer book, if you're not familiar with it, is loaded with scripture. It keeps us in the story. It embeds us in the story. That's a profound way that we are animated by the spirit because we're washing all the time in the story. And I want to suggest a contrast. Some of us, I think, are tempted to live with angst and frustration and grief. And we know that anxiety is a chronic problem of our day. And I think there's a new phenomenon. There's the fruit of our phones. Just being there too much, absorbing these contesting stories. So there's this uh, reporter who uh, tweeted, this is great, 
There's this guy, he's in a coffee shop. He noticed something. He sends out a tweet. It goes viral. Here's the tweet. There's a guy in this coffee shop sitting at a table, not on his phone, not on a laptop, just drinking coffee like a psychopath. I mean, if this is a psychopath, let's do it, right? All right, my last idea. Uh, So far, again, be animated by the story. Let's be animated by the spirit. And then finally, uh, let's seek out good examples. And let's seek to be good examples of this Christ-like disposition, okay? So where do you struggle with this whole disposition thing? I'm serious. Find some people you know that are good at the thing you don't do well in this whole fruit of the spirit list and talk to them. Have coffee and, and say, hey, let me in on your secret. Like this is a struggle for me. Something that's remarkable in the New Testament, it seems to me we've practically given up this habit. I think there's at least four places where the Apostle Paul is audacious enough to say, follow my example as I follow the example of Jesus. We're kind of afraid to say that. But here's the thing. We do it. We follow the example of others, and others follow our example. So let's own it. It's just the way life works. So please take that seriously, both in discipling yourself, at least in some areas where you can receive help, and then look around. Who are the people that are looking at you because there are some? And and let that be a holy burden, right? And I mean holy burden, not something that weighs you down, but something that is a motivator, it's like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to stay in this. I'm going to stay in the story. I'm going to immerse myself in the story. I'm going to seek to be animated by the Spirit. People are watching me, and they need to see that I, that what a disposition looks like. And so here's the last thing. One of the places where Paul directs followers <clears throat> uh, to follow, uh, where Paul directs believers to follow his example is in Philippians chapter 4. And there's a well-known verse Philippians 4, 8, where Paul says, whatever is true and noble and right and pure, and he goes on with a list, kind of like the fruits of the Spirit, and he says, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. He's telling us where to put our energies. But then again, here's another verse that we might miss. Listen to verse 9. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. That's that scene part that's especially intriguing. It's Paul taking on that responsibility. I will show you. And then here's the great promise. The last line. And the God of peace will be with you. And the God of peace will be with you. Boy, do we need that. And our world needs that. So let's endeavor to not just have good theology, but to have a really good posture and disposition. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.